Well, it is, uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, it's, always, uh, it's always a joy to get to teach uh, to our college students, and so, uh, so I'm happy to be here. Uh, as Trey said, uh, our agenda today is simply to consider what our world and what God's Word says about the topic of love. Uh, so the world and Scripture are both going to give us competing pictures of love. Uh, and so what I want us to do this morning is just scrutinize both of them. I want us to, to hold love up to the light uh, and then just help us come to uh, a better, truer, uh, richer understanding of, uh, of love as, as it's defined by God. Because if, if God is love, as 1 John 4, 8 says, uh, then that means that God, God sets the standards and the measure of all loves. People might say that they love love, but if they don't define it on God's terms, what they actually love is just some distortion of it. Um, so a few years ago, uh, you may remember Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, how many of you guys know who that is? Probably going to see every hand in here go up, right? The star of Broadway's Hamilton, right? He gave this impassioned speech at the 2016 Tony Awards uh, when he declared that love is love, 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 cannot be killed or swept aside. It was a beautiful speech talking about his love for his wife, but it perfectly captures the spirit of our, our culture's views on love. Because to say love is love is love makes love itself the supreme standard. But if God is love, then we can't define love apart from him. We might think we love love, but rejecting God's love and rejecting God himself means it's actually something else we love, something lesser than the real thing. And this is precisely what makes the doctrine of the love of God so difficult to grasp. Because our culture isn't interested in the God who is love. And as a result, our notion of love becomes the supreme object of our worship, and, and the truth about God and his word gets distorted. And when scripture no longer informs our view of love, we end up assuming that God's love is, is just like our love. That when the Bible says God is love, then what that really means is that God won't set any moral boundaries on, on my life. He'll accept me unconditionally, no matter what, and I'm free to live as I want and do what I want because God is love. But is that really what the Bible means when it says that God is love? That's the question uh, I want us to, to answer this morning. We're going to drill into God's love by first considering how our culture distorts it, uh, and then we're going to turn our attention to look at how God, God's word defines it, uh, and then we'll close by thinking how God manifests his love and multiply, multiplies it through, uh, through his church. So if you're looking at your handout, uh, let's look at that, that first point, love according to the world. Now, there are a number of ways that the world idolizes love, but I just want us to focus in on three. And the first one, individualistic love, centers on the self. It centers on the self. It bends inward, looking inside myself for whatever completes me. Fundamentally, it's about breaking free from any outside force that might impose its structures or its rules upon me. So it's, it's, at the end of the day, it's about being guided by internal desire. 
an impulse rather than, than any external constraints. What matters most is who we are in ourselves, what I want, what I feel, what makes me happy and free. This version of love is, is essentially the plot of every romantic movie you'll watch and every love song you'll, you'll hear. So just think of the words uh, to let it go from Disney's Frozen. All right, I know Trey has a habit of quoting Disney movies for you, so I'm just going to stay in that same rhythm. All right, I'm not going to sing these songs, this song for you, but my daughter, she could recite it from, from memory by heart for you. All right, so just think about these words. The wind is howling like the, the swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I've tried. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. And later, later on in the song, Elsa actually sings the words, these words. The fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. So can you hear how even a Disney princess celebrates culture's view of self-love? How she courageously casts off all encumbrances in pursuit of her prize. So think about, think about how many times you've heard someone make the argument, if two people really love each other, then they should just be happy, right? We, we shouldn't stop them. We shouldn't get in the way of that, right? This is the individualistic mantra of our culture today. It's love rooted in self-discovery and self-expression that justifies breaking every rule and every norm. And notice how, how this becomes the perfect vehicle then for sinful human beings to get everything they want and to do and live whatever they want, however they please. If this is how we view love, who, who can tell us that we're wrong? Who can tell us that, that we're sinful? In fact, the, the only thing to be stopped are those who oppose our desires. Opponents to anything called love, they're the ones to be judged and vanquished. And so the baker who refuses to bake a cake for a same-sex same -sex wedding, they get taken to court. The college student who, who says that sex, love, and commitment belong together in marriage, they get mocked. And the son of God who calls us to deny ourselves and take up a cross, well, what happens to him? He gets crucified. All right, so that's individualistic love. Consumeristic love. That's, that's the next thing I want us to look at. Inevitably, love that, that centers on the self will lead to uh, an identity that centers less and less on outside forces. Where we were born, whose son or daughter we are, what, what customs shape us. And more and more, it's going to be defined by the choices we make. So we, we, treat, we treat love like we're a shopper standing in the cereal aisle at, at the grocery store. We've got hundreds of flavors to choose from, and no one is there to tell us which one we have to take. Right? We no, no longer have mom telling us we have to pick the healthy, the healthy cereal. Right? We, feel, we feel like Honey Nut Cheerios today? Great, go for it. That's what I'm buying. Cinnamon Toast Crunch? Why not? Who's there to stop me? 
right? And this, this, is, this is consumeristic love, right? In this view, all of life, it becomes a shopping mall. Do you guys even know what those are anymore? Like, I don't, I don't know. I can't remember the last time I went to a mall. Love, love becomes this transactional decision that, that depends on the appetites of the moment, right? Like a shopper making purchases on, on impulses rather than deeper, unseen qualities that are timeless and, and fixed. When we approach love and relationships as, as consumers, it's, it's the more superficial, superficial traits that win our attention, right? Physical beauty counts more than character, sexual performance more than faithfulness, right? So just, just stop and consider how the typical dating process works today, all right? A man, he evaluates his own power based on what he believes a woman most values, humor, personality, looks, future job prospects. He, he orients his entire life around that. And then acting on this, the man can then go shop around and, and make the best purchase based on whatever traits he thinks the woman most values. And with plenty of fish in the sea, he can be picky in his demands. It's not just beauty he's looking, he's looking for, but it's a, a specific body type. And when the two people feel like they've finally found the best object on the market, then they can fall in love. And if it doesn't work out, well, then you can just always trade your partner in for something, something different. All right. Now, aside from the sheer objectification of those made in the image of God with this view of love, one of the side effects of, of consumeristic love is the fear of making a lasting commitment. Right? Whenever a relationship or a job becomes inconvenient for us or it demands too much of us, well, we can just exchange that job or that person in for something or someone less demanding and even more convenient for us. And as a result, the, the idea of commitment is removed from the ingredients of love entirely. Now, many are going to, to react to individualistic and consumeristic notions of love in our culture by emphasizing uh, a, group, a group mentality, group membership. So where the other loves ultimately center on the self, tribalistic love, that third, that third love there, it centers on group identity. And this, this view of love, the group becomes a god uh, around which the whole solar system of love orbits, demanding that, that we accept and affirm uh, that group on their terms. Right? This is especially true of, of groups who've suffered injustices uh, or oppression. So feminism, uh, minority rights groups, LGBTQ activists, they're all examples of this. Right? They demand that we need to give more attention to what it means to be a female uh, or to be a minority or homosexual or non-binary. Right? We have to we have to interpret life on their terms, right? And such a worldview can, can get dangerously idolatrous. So group identity, it, it becomes idolatrous when, when you or I love the members of your tribe uh, or group to the exclusion of other, others. Or when a person's, group, groups, when a person's uh, group membership wholly determines my perspective on that person, right? As, as if what what group they do or don't belong to is the most important thing about them. The group defines the person. I'm sure you, you guys see this kind of 
um, tribalism play itself out on campus all the time, right? All the time. Now, now those are those those are the three three views of love according to the culture. But I wanted us to take a step back and think about how they influence and affect the local church. So when we love individualistically, right, the culture is going to creep into us uh, far more than we realize or think. Uh, so don't think that just because we're the church, we're, we're, uh, we're immune to these views of love. But when we love individualistically, the church gets reduced to a place that's merely uh, to grow in self-realization uh, and self-expression. So though we'd never say it, church becomes less of a place to worship Jesus and more of a place to feed my own felt needs and desires. Do I connect with the pastor? Right? Did the music a- appeal to me emotionally? Did the people look like me? Did they make me feel comfortable? All right, and when the service is over, we evaluate everything that we've experienced. You know, I, I liked the music, but, but that one song wasn't my favorite. The preacher was good, but man, he preached for a really, really long time, and now I'm really hungry. All right, ultimately, we end up judging the church rather than letting the word of God judge us. And consumeristic love, uh, similarly, it's going to overvalue the size of the congregation and the performance of the people up front. Right, so does the church, does it put on a good show? Did, did the service produce the kind of spiritual high or put me on the, the mountaintop experience that I need each week when I go to church? Right, do I want to worship God to a rock band today or a bluegrass folk duo? Right, praise God, I've got choices. I can, I've got options. Right, without, any accept, without any expectation of, of a binding commitment, we, we are free to church hop from one church to the next with little to no care for the people that we leave behind. Right, we just want to come, come in the back door uh, and get our Jesus fix and then get out as quickly as, as possible um, without, anyone that, that, without anyone ever knowing that you were there uh, or that you walked through the door. All right, because... Because, God forbid, getting actually involved in a church will mean commitment and inconvenience for me. All right, I'm, I'm describing my own church experience in college, by the way. This, this was me to AT uh, in college. A tribalistic ap- approach, it's going to infect the church in the same way. A church is loving when, only loving when it validates my tribe, when it makes us feel relaxed, comfortable, or, or not judged. When we, when we can be ourselves there, we, we can be accepted. So we become less concerned about how to be right with God and more concerned with the validation of whatever tribe we belong to. This is really easy for, for you guys as college students to just kind of drift into this, this mindset. We're college students, right? We're, we're the group. We're the, uh, we're the tribe. Uh, and what, what happens is if we're not careful, we become more interested in waving the, f- the flag of our group identity uh, than we do in our Christian identity. And ultimately, all of these views of love uh, have one thing, they have the same thing in common, right? They all put us at the center of the show. They put the individual, they put me at the center of the show. And when that happens, we reject all, we're rejecting all authority outside of ourself and we're revealing ultimately a disinterest in God 
his people, and it's elevating our self-worth over his. That's elevating our self-worth over God's worth. Any questions about that before we move on to how the Bible describes love? All right. Well, what does God's love look like? God's love, what does God's love look like? Now, the Bible uh, is going to talk about the love of God in a number of ways. So the five that we're going to look at that you see in your handout, they're in no way exhaustive, nor are they mutually exclusive. Oftentimes, we take the doctrine of the love of God for granted. So, so, So many of the distinctions that the Bible makes about God's love uh, are going to get overlooked. This is what, ta- what Trey was, was, uh, was talking about uh, just a second ago. We know that God is love, but really we don't know what that means. Right? So what, what does the Bible say about the love of God? Well, any talk about God's love must first, with, must first begin with God's love within the Trinity, within the Godhead. That's your first point there, God's Trinitarian love. So we simply can't understand the love of God without first considering the love that's shared between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're going to be thinking more about this uh, next Sunday uh, in week two of this, uh, of this lesson. Scripture is most explicit about the love uh, be- between the Father and the Son, between God and Christ. And the Gospel of John is especially rich in this theme. So in John 3.35, Jesus says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then later in chapter 5, verse 20, he says, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. And then again in John 14, 31, Jesus says that he obeys the Father's commands because he wants the world to see his love for the Father. And how does the Father make this love known? Well, it's through giving Jesus the Spirit. At the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, we read this. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Paul, he's going to echo the exact same thing in Romans 5.5 when he writes of how God pours his love into the hearts, uh, into our hearts through and by the Holy Spirit. So it's through giving the Holy Spirit that the Father declares his love for the Son. It's all deeply personal language, right? The Spirit stirs up the delight of the Father in the Son and the delight of the Son in the Father. And then what happens? Their, their love is inflamed, and it seals them together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So if, if there was ever a, a love triangle, this is it, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the first way the Bible talks about the love of God. The Bible also shows us uh, about, uh, talks to us about God's providential love over creation. That's, that's the second one there. So the word love, it isn't used explicitly in Genesis 1, uh, but the concept is, is absolutely there. So at the end of, of each act of creation, God pronounces everything that he's made as good. And then on the last day of creation, he pronounces it very good. 
So here we see that creation isn't just the product or the result of of some cold, uncaring, detached deity out there, uh, but it's actually the product of a loving and personal creator. Jesus echoes uh, this same truth in the Sermon on the Mount when he says that God sends rain to water the crops of both the just and the unjust, uh, and that God lovingly provides for his people just as he lovingly provides for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That's God's providential love. A third way the Bible speaks uh, about God's love is in terms of his love for a sinful world. So his love for a fallen world. Right? So his posture toward a world bent on willful and culpable rebellion isn't one of hostility and vengeance. It's not one of hostility and vengeance. Instead, his heart for us actually bends towards us in love with this unflinching desire to forgive and to restore us. In fact, he longs to redeem the world so much that he enacts it. He launches a rescue mission for us in Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right? And we see the same stance get described in Ezekiel uh, chapter 33, verse 11. To rebels, to, to those who are by nature God's enemies, he calls out and says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So however much God stands in judgment over the world, he also presents himself as the God who invites and commands all human beings to repent so that they might live. And flowing out of, uh, of this love for a fallen world is a particular love that he, received, that he reserves uniquely for those that he redeems. So that's the fourth the fourth one there, letter D, God's particular love. So in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verses 7 to 8, God tells the people of Israel this. Right? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So what sets Israel apart? Well, what sets Israel apart from the other nations It wasn't their unique loveliness or, or their worth. In fact, they were pretty invaluable. No, what, what set them apart was that God, in his surprising sovereignty, chose to place his saving love particularly, uniquely, on them. God sets his affection on his chosen ones in a way in which he doesn't set uh, that loving affection on others. All right, Paul, in the New Testament book of Ephesians, he, he echoes the same theme when he says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Christ's love is it's particularly reserved for those who constitute the church. He alone will be her husband, and she alone uh, will be his bride. All right, that's God's uh, particular love. And finally, the Bible 
will sometimes speak of God's love toward his own people in a conditional way, right? A love that's conditioned uh, on obedience to his word, right? Now, this doesn't describe how we become true followers of God as, as if we can merit or win his affection through our obedience and our good works. Instead, it's describing what the relationship is like once we're actually in it with him, right? So Jude uh, exhorts his readers in Jude 21 to keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God, right? And then Jesus is going to, he's going to speak in these same kind of conditional terms, right? John 15, 9, he commands his disciples to remain in his love. And then he adds, if you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So that if-then clause, uh, it highlights the conditional nature of his love. If we've been loved by God, then we will keep his commandments and remain in his love. All right? So don't, don't mishear what I'm saying. We have a tendency to hear this and, and, and misunderstand it. I'm not saying uh, that God's love for his children depends on their obedience as if God can fall out of love with you if you're performing poorly, right? Remember, God doesn't love us the way the world loves, right? His love isn't consumeristic in that way. It, it's covenantal, right? His love isn't fickle, it's faithful. And such a doctrine then, uh, it, it should guard us from having to uh, endlessly fret about whether or not we've been good enough today to enjoy the love of God forever. But it also guards us from the disaster of, of just drifting into sin and, and thinking and believing the lie that God's love is unconditional in the sense that, that I can live however I want without any fear of falling under his wrath because God is love. Right? Instead, this doctrine is meant to, to keep us in the steadfast love of God by motivating us to faithful obedience to his word. So all of these descriptions of God's love uh, are going to manifest themselves in very real and tangible ways, right? His love, it actually, it's not this static thing that is out there, but it actually takes on flesh and blood, right? It, his love is the stuff of, of skin and bones. And we see this really in two places, right? The, the cross and the local church. So the third, third point there. Um, the manifestation of God's love. Uh, I want us to look just briefly at, at two ways that the cross, uh, two ways that God's love manifests itself. So first up, the cross, right? God's love, it culminates and manifests itself most powerfully, uh, most clearly on the cross uh, and in the Savior who, who willfully uh, hangs upon it for our sake, right? So Paul in Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It can't get more clear than that. Right? And uh, the son's death on the cross is the evidence of God's love for sinners like us. If you ever doubt God's love for you, look at the cross. Right? John, 1 John 4, 9, 10 puts it this way. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You hear how that shatters every view of love uh, that the culture, culture takes? God sends his son to die in our place when we didn't deserve it, when we were not lovely, right? So that he might suffer the penalty of our sin and bring to life all who, who repent of their sins and turn to Christ in faith. So if you're here this morning uh, and you are a Christian, right? You've done that. You've repented and you've turned from your sin and you've trusted in Christ, right? Then this is how you know that God loves you, right? It's in the cross that you know God loves you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then this is how you can know that God loves you, right? You have rebelled against a holy God and you stand condemned before him because you have broken and disobeyed his commands on your life. And yet, in his great love and in his mercy and in his kindness to you, he sent his son to suffer that condemnation in your place on the cross. If only you will abandon your sin and put your faith in Christ. And it's only, it's only in turning uh, from your sins and giving your life to Christ in this way that you can know God's love for you. All right, so I, I beg you to repent and to believe. Anybody in this room uh, that you came with would want to talk to you about that. Me, Trey, Joy. Um, so don't leave here without that, uh, without that knowledge of God's love for you. Well, when we, when we do that, right, when we repent and we believe, God, God then draws us out of the world uh, and into a new family, what we call the church. And this is the second way that we see God's love manifested for us. Right? His love, it, it makes us a new person individually, uh, but, but then it makes us a new people. It draws that individual into a community of lovers. And it's only in that new commun- community of the church that, that we get a full-orbed picture uh, of God's love. Most fundamentally, uh, the church displays the love of God by uh, the love of God by loving one another as Christ has loved us. Right? That's what Jesus tells his disciples in John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Christ's love shines. It, it manifests itself when we love one another. In our love for one another, we see the love of God. Right? We display him and his gospel when we gather with other Christians who are not like us and we strive, uh, we strive in that time not to act from selfish ambition or conceit like the world would, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. When we look not to the interest of, uh, of, our, of our own selves like the world does, but we instead look also to the interests of others. No, no other institution, no other, other organism on planet Earth can display the love of God in Christ uh, the way the, the local church is called to do it. And finally, the last thing I want us to see, uh, number four there, um, the last thing I want us to see is that God's love is the kind of love that multiplies. Right? He manifests his love for us in the cross and then draws us into a community called the church, and then he, he calls us to go and do something with his love. Um, so his love, it, it compels us not only to, 
to love our brothers and sisters in the context of the local church, but it also propels us out into the world to declare the love of God to others. All right, that's, that's the whole point of Jesus' final words to his disciples in Matthew 28. All right, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So God, God loves us so that we can go and tell others about his love. He loves us so that we can go and tell others about his love. That, that's the whole point, right? God's love, it propels us toward others. It, it, its arc bends outward. So that's what you guys, that's what you guys thought about this past Thursday uh, at the called and sent event that you were at. Um, and it's what we're going to be thinking about even more this morning and uh, in the sermon uh, in the main service on the, on the mission of the church. So if, if you've been loved by God, then, then you go and tell others about God's love for them in Christ, right? Go and, and make more lovers of God from all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded for you. All right, let me pray for us, and then I'll, we'll give some books away and head off to our discussion groups. Father, we praise you that you indeed have loved us in Christ. Uh, I pray that this morning we would be encouraged and refreshed anew uh, in the power and the clarity uh, and the immensity of your love for, uh, for sinners. Uh, pray that we would marvel in it. Lord, I pray uh, for our discussion time now that you would use it just to continue stirring up our affections for you as we reflect on your affections for us in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.